I want you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. And uh, we're going to read quite a long flow of prophetic scripture. I'm speaking today on Lucifer, Adam, and me. Verse 15, Romans 8. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself will also be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searched the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. When we have a look at the world that's described here in Romans chapter 8, we can see certain elements of it that are clearly observable to our own eyes. We live in a world that is broken, a world which is corrupt and perishing, a world that is futile so that if our hope was only for this world, we would have no hope. But when we look with the light of the revelation of this passage, we see something else in our world. We see a God of love, a God who knows all of the ins and outs and every detail of the suffering and brokenness and pain and anguish and longing that is within our hearts. 
When we look at this world, we might say, well, how do we make sense of it? When we look at the good things, we can say, look, all these good things show that there is a good God behind it all. And there are many, many good things in our world. And we can see the traces of the designer's hand when we look at the beautiful qualities of our world. And and we see wonderful things, beauty, glory in our world that speaks of, of this intelligent design wrought by in the mind of God and wrought by the hand of God in this beautiful world. And we are reminded that when God made it originally, even he himself looked at it and said, it is very good. And and in that world, the original world that he created, there was no pain, no suffering, no sickness, no sin, nothing at all that would detract from the beauty and glory of his creation. But when we look again at our world, we say it's no longer exactly like that. We see in this world, something has happened. In fact, when we look at the world, we can begin to trace the hands of another designer, an evil one, an evil force that has somehow managed to enter into this world and bring corruption and pain, knowing that this is not our God It's not the God of the universe who made it like this. Something has happened. Something catastrophic has taken place. And indeed, as we shall see today, something something cosmic has taken place. Ever before we were even here, something happened in the heavenly realms to interfere with and to mar God's beautiful creation and, uh, but when we read this passage, we see that that's not the end. That God hasn't lost control of his world. That God still loves his world and has chosen to set his love upon this whole world, the created world, and especially that part of the created world, you and me, who are, who are made in his image. And because of that choice of his to enter a rescue plan, came into this world in the person of Jesus Christ and suffered on the cross and died and was raised again from the dead. And because of the resurrection, now we can look at this broken world and say, God isn't finished with it yet. In fact, we can read this passage and see that all God's purposes are are working together for good so that in the end we shall see the purpose of it all. But we do have to acknowledge that in the meantime, we've got a big problem on our hands. Paul speaks about the suffering of this present time and describes a world which seems to be host to suffering, that seems to be set up in that direction, a world that is in bondage to, to, to futility and corruption. And, and yet in this world, something wonderful is happening. The Bible describes it like this. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. There is a new creation that's already begun to work in this world. This new creation follows an order. It is not a new creation in which the physical world is immediately transformed into the new heavens and the new earth that the Bible promises shall happen. 
But somebody has entered this world and has introduced already a resurrection into this world. And we know that the same spirit who lives in us is the same spirit who raised Christ from the dead. And if he lives in us, he is going to quicken our mortal bodies and he's going to bring us into a new heavens and a new earth where there'll be no more pain, no more dying, no more crying, no more sorrow and no more sin. So how do we get ready to live in this world? First of all, we look at the world and we can see it's very clear that this world is not the perfect world that we would choose to live in if we just wanted to be happy. If you were somebody to say to you, okay, let's go, it's very crazy talk here right now, but let's go, let's make a universe which is all about happiness. We would say, okay, no sickness, no disease, no pain, no relational breakdown, no hurt, just happy stuff, just fulfilling stuff, just enriching stuff. And we would have something in our mind very similar to the created world as it was in the beginning, perfect and wonderful and a beautiful garden and beautiful relationships and God dwelling in the midst. But if we're somebody to say to you, okay, now let's, let's design another world. Let's think about what kind of world would we need if it wasn't about our present happiness? What, what if there was a world that we could think of which was all about learning to love God despite our circumstances? And indeed, In this world, even the bad things that are happening have a purpose, a preparation, a spiritual development in us, whereby we could learn not to depend on the physical world that we can see and touch, but on the invisible world, the world of God's love. And and, and what if somebody to say, make a world where it would be a world in which we could grow spiritually and mature spiritually. Probably, we would be describing the world as it actually is. And this begins to help us understand in the first place that if there is a God of love and a God who is all-powerful, who made everything, how can it be that evil and pain and suffering and sin actually exists? That's a big question. It's a very big question. And I'm not suggesting today that these few thoughts that I'm offering to you is the whole answer. But we can see that this world that is broken and hurting and futile and corrupt was not God's original plan. Something happened. Something happened even before we were here, and indeed something happened that was even external to the human race itself. We have to go into the heavenly realms and see a battle that took place long ago. A battle not just between humanity and God, but a battle between a person whom we now call and understand to be Satan, a beautiful created being, not created as Satan, the adversary, but created in one of his Bible names as Lucifer, a brilliant, bright, shining, angelic being given 
much splendor, a high position in heaven, who, who one day, as, as, as we say, one day decided that it was not enough just to live in the presence of God. Not enough just to gaze upon the beauty of God and, as some Bible scholars suggest, be the choir master, to be the music director, to be the lead worshiper in heaven. And that's, there's some evidence that that's the role of Lucifer before he fell. And to say, no, 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 I'm not happy just about getting glory to God and being the person that helps God get glory. I want the glory for myself. And so lifted up with pride, lifted up with jealousy, and lifted up with a desire to get more than what God offers, to be dissatisfied with God himself and say, I want more than what God has for me. Well, that's exactly the Bible's revelation concerning the origin of evil. The origin of evil. Where did evil come from in this universe which was originally created for the glory of God, by the very hand of God, created beautiful and wonderful? Where did evil come from? Now, there are a couple of passages in the Bible that give us these insights. Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. Let me describe both of them before I take you to a couple of verses. Here we have a description of God's judgment on two kings. First of all, the king of Tyre, that's in Ezekiel 28. And secondly, the king of Babylon in Isaiah 14. And these were real kings, flesh and blood people. And when God describes how they had behaved and the judgment he was going to bring upon them and their kingdoms, he begins to use language that takes us out of this world, out of the world that we can see and touch, out of the world of people with bodies and flesh and blood, and uses language that hints at something else taking place in the heavenlies. Let me show you. Ezekiel 28 Verse 12 says, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him. So this is Ezekiel prophesying the judgment of God over a real historical king, the king of Tyre. And he says, tell him this. Thus says the Lord God, you were the seal of perfection. That's certainly not talking about the king of Tyre. Full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. No, that's not the king of Tyre. He's now talking about another personality, a spiritual being that predated Tyre and all of the other earthly histories. Full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. So we have pre-existing this history that is being described is something taking place in heaven. An angelic spiritual being, not always having existed, no, created, as it says at the end of verse 13, on the day you were created, a created spiritual being, whom we now know to be Satan. Satan, like the king of Tyre, had become preoccupied with his personal beauty, And with acquiring more and more knowledge, 
for his own purposes and fame. And therefore God says, I will cast you out. Interesting. The major revelations are the same throughout the whole of scripture where Satan is spoken of and we have a glimpse of this cosmic battle that took place between Satan and God. We always see it in the context of God's absolute overall control and judgment over the powers of darkness. Can I have a hallelujah in the house of God? The king of Babylon, Isaiah 14, again, judgment on the king of Babylon, verse 12. Listen to this language, certainly no longer just speaking about an earthly king, but speaking with transcendent language, speaking about what was taking place in the heavenly realms before even the king of Babylon existed. Verse 12, how are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer? Here's The devil's name before he became the devil, before he became Satan, the adversary. Lucifer means bright, brilliant star, created by God to shine with brilliance and glory, the glory of God throughout all the universe. And yet, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. Why? For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. Number one, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. Number two, I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farther side of the north. Number three, number four, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. And here is the killer. Number five, I will be like the most high. Five times Lucifer says, I will. And his five-fold declaration of ambition and independence became the mother and father of all evil. God is not responsible for the trouble in the world. God is not the troublemaker. The devil's the troublemaker. Let's get that right. Lucifer wanted to become like God, even perhaps to take the very place of God, to to rule his own life, his own way. He wanted to receive the glory. He wanted the acclaim. He wanted to rule over others. He wanted to be numo unero in this mundo. Number one in this world. And in that description, we find the very essence of evil. Let's just take a little pause here. And reflect on this for a moment. I don't know if you've ever come across this kind of statement when you are sharing your faith in God with somebody that does not yet believe in God or the God of the Bible. And you haven't got very far until somebody will stop you and say, how can you believe in God when there's so much suffering in the world? Can you see what is wrong with that question? It is presupposing that God is the one responsible. The Bible makes it very clear. God is not responsible for the suffering in the world. That came in not by the will of God, but through the rejection of God's will. And so we need to help people understand that our God remains a good and loving God and and, and hasn't just left this world just to perish on its own. He could have. He could have and and remained righteous and just and loving because this world has rejected him. But God chose not to do that. Stepped right into this world in the person of Jesus and 
And you know, I don't believe that there is, the Bible gives a full and satisfactory answer, at least to our intellectually inquiring minds, a full answer to the problem of evil and suffering. But the Bible gives us some glimpses. Number one, God is not responsible. Number two, God has entered this world of suffering and pain in the person of Jesus Christ. And the next time somebody questions the lovingness of God in the presence of evil, take them to Calvary, take them to the cross, and see one who has not just pronounced about sin and suffering from the safe and sanctified position of heaven, but has entered this world of pain and has shared our sufferings and sorrows. And indeed, more than just shared in the sufferings and sorrows that we experience, but shared in the level of suffering and sorrows concerning God's judgment so that we will never have to suffer the eternal consequences of our sin. And take them further, and take them from the cross to the grave, and from the grave to the resurrection, and see that in the resurrection of Jesus, something has happened that gives hope for us all, not just for our own salvation, but for the redemption of the whole of the universe. The resurrection of Jesus demonstrates It's the first fruits of a new creation, a physical reality, a physical new creation that one day shall touch every corner of the universe. The new heavens and the new earth. This is the new creation. It will be a physically new creation. But in the meantime, he has released into our hearts the very spirit of that new creation, the Holy Spirit. And so now we have the new creation inside where we're set free from the bondage of sin and death and the penalty of sin and the power of sin with the hope that one day even the presence of sin will be removed from us. And during this time when we live in the, for the invisible kingdom that has not yet been made visible physically in our universe, we live with the hope of life now, and a full redemption to come. Even our very bodies are going to be changed. Hallelujah. How wonderful. So when we look at the essence of evil, we're not just looking at the effects. Very often people want to talk about the effects, never the essence. They want to say, look, babies suffer terrible, unexplained suffering, and there's no philosopher, Christian or otherwise, that can fully explain that. Terrible suffering. We look at the world today, we see there's a lot of suffering which is produced by wicked people. All the disasters that are taking place globally through such groups such as ISIS, who are manifesting sheer evil, and even atheists who don't believe in a personal God, let alone a personal devil, speak in terms which show that they understand this is evil. And and it's not just individual choice. It is evil that is operating at a wide level 
It's a coordinated, concerted effort. There is a, a level, there is a, a form of evil and a level of evil behind all that we see by way of its effects in this world. There is an evil intelligence that somehow is pulling the strings and masterminding and working in this world. And of course, his name is the devil, uh, Lucifer, bright star. Now he is called the devil, Satan. Satan means adversary. And so he's become the adversary of God. And when we look at the effects of evil, it's, it's appalling. But when we start looking at the essence of it, suddenly it comes much closer to home. What's the essence of evil? He wanted to depose God and rule his, his, in his place. Lucifer wanted to rule his own life. I'm going to do things my way, not Yahweh. Yahweh. I want to do it my way. Lucifer wanted something more than God had given him. God had given him so much. He, he, he must have been just this most wonderful, amazingly beautiful, glorious being. And he looked in the mirror and said, my, 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 aren't I beautiful? It's about time that more people recognize this. And he saw all the glory going to God. And he said, that's not fair. Give me some of that glory. In fact, I want to take it all. God, I am, move over, move over. You're sitting in my chair. That's the essence of evil and it's very close to home because we know that those similar things are motivating us very often. We want something more than what God gives us. Even if it means disobeying him, we lust for, we desire for more power, more control, more recognition, more glory, more pleasure, more satisfaction, more, more, more God. And if you don't give it to me, I'll get it myself. I think the root of all sin and evil is the belief that God is not enough. A little while ago, I spoke to you about the graffiti church. Do you recall that message? The graffiti church. In other words, what graffiti is the world painting on the walls of our lives? When they look at us, what do they see? What do they say about us? I tell you what I'd like them to say. I'd like them to look at our lives and spray paint this graffiti over our lives and over our churches, these people love God and they love one another. They love God because they recognize there's something in God that not even anything in the world could replace. As Jesus said, what if you were able to gain the whole world and lose your own soul? What good would it be? What about those believers who still try to build the whole of their Christian life on what they can get from God. As if the deal is, God, I love you. I, I, I do what you tell me to do and you take care of me. You've got to make sure that my life works the way I want it. That's the essence of a religion. It's not real faith in God. And this current world as it is now is precisely set with that in mind. It's exactly the kind of world that we need to live in to discover whether God is enough. Or whether we just have to rely on things because God isn't enough. To put our trust in the visible things. 
to think that it's all about my happiness now. No, no, God says, listen, I'm concerned for your happiness. That's why I'm not going to give you everything now. You need to know that this world is designed as a preparation for something that is to come. And only under these conditions of suffering and brokenness and pain and frustration and unfulfilled dreams and unrealized goals and ambitions, only that kind of world will teach you that I am enough. Only that kind of world will teach you your real purpose for being here. Your real purpose for being here is not to be a good husband, to have a great family, to have a great income, to have a great job, to have some influence in this world and to have some level of satisfaction. Those things, if you desire them, good. Keep them in second place though. Keep them in second place. First thing is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Most people are living for a better life and saying, God, if I serve you, if I pay my tithes, if I keep my nose clean and I, and I, and I do what I'm supposed to do, then you've got to do what you're supposed to do. And what you're supposed to do is make life work for me. Amen, Lord, I humbly ask. But it's that spirit of demandingness and entitlement that is so ungodly. I tell you what is godly is to say, God, I seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And whatever else is added as, uh, alongside that, thank God. But I will not take my eyes off the giver and be seduced by his gifts. I'll keep my heart. I will draw close to you. And that's my hope for this life, that I can draw close to God right here and now, uh, whatever is happening. In good times, as the Bible tells us, if you're, if you're blessed and you're happy, praise God. Hallelujah. And if you're not, pray. Draw close to God. I think sometimes when we, when we praise him in the tough times, it's worth a hundred times more than when we praise him and everything's going well. Remember the book of Job, when he suffered those things, what did Job say? The Lord has given, the Lord has taken away, I don't understand it, I have no idea, it's suffering, I don't like it, I wish he would change it, but nevertheless, blessed be the name of the Lord. That's not some Old Testament legalistic view. It's a person who's understood that all good things come from God. And, uh, and, and when, when things happen to us that we don't like, we can still trust God that he could have stopped it. But nevertheless, for reasons best known to himself, he's allowed it. And my faith is not shattered. In fact, sometimes in times of suffering, our faith is strengthened more and more because when we come to the end of our resources, we say, God, unless you be God, I'm finished. That's what Paul said. In 1 Corinthians 15, he describes his life and he said, you people who say there's no resurrection, you're crazy. If there's no resurrection, if this life is all that we have to live for and hope for, there's no life to come, then we Christians are the worst people. We live it with the most miserable of all. Why? Because for the sake of Christ, Paul was able to say no to promotion, say no to financial reward. He lived a life 
which put him right on the front lines of, the, of spiritual battle. He said, you know what? For me to live is Christ, to die, that's a mere detail. When I die, I'm going to be with, he- going to be with him. But right now, I'm living for God no matter what it costs me, whether it's painful or pleasant. And we have, frankly, both kinds of experiences, most of us. But in the painful times, we suddenly realize that we're not masters of our own destiny. That there is no A that we can infallibly do to guarantee the B, the blessing we're looking for. That sometimes you have to say, God, I don't understand, but I draw close to you. I draw close to you and I know there's a hope. And my hope is not for this life. My hope is for the life that is to come. Now, the cross and conflict. Then, the glory of the perfect day. That's why Paul could say, I am so persuaded that this present sufferings, the sufferings of this present time, this present life, are not worth comparing with the glory that shall be revealed because his hope wasn't in this life or in this world. His hope was in the world to come and that would happen at the resurrection. We all know, however, that this is working in us Talk about Lucifer. We see how this entered the human race through Adam. We're talking now not about the origin of evil, but original sin. How does sin enter the human race and how does it affect us all? And when we do this, we think of Genesis chapter 3. If you want to read the verses later, it's verses 1 through 6. Eve is tempted. First of all, there's deception. You shall not die when you eat of this fruit. Satan, the serpent, was lying to her. A lot of people go around, the, the, live, live their life not realizing they're living by deception. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the ends thereof are the ways to death. You shall not die. God is trying to withhold something from you. He, you see, he knows that if you eat of this fruit of the, of the knowledge of good and evil, you will become like God, and he doesn't want that. He wants to keep it to himself. And so this desire to become like God is exactly the essence of evil that was expressed when Lucifer rebelled. And out of that deception and dissatisfaction comes a desire. Your eyes are opened and you begin to look at things differently. She looked at the fruit. She said, my, 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 that's good for food. My, 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 it's attractive and pleasing to my eyes. And oh, it's so desirable to make me wise. If I eat this fruit, I'll know enough so that I can kick God out of my life and make my life work without him. And it's going to be better when I do that. And then comes this control. This despotic control when Eve takes control of her own life and begins to put herself on the throne of her life. And we haven't got to Adam yet. Romans 5 verse 12 says, Therefore just as through one man sin entered the world. Excuse me, ladies and gentlemen, but didn't we just read or refer to the fact that it was the woman who ate the fruit first? She gave it to her husband. Can't we blame our wives more often, brothers? But the Bible's very clear, not through Eve, but through Adam, sin entered the world. 
And because of that, death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. So in other words, sin entered the human race through Adam. How is that? That shows you the responsibility that Adam was given by God. Eve was deceived. Adam went in with his eyes open. And men, ladies, just keep your ears blocked for a moment. Guys, you and I know that every man is terrified of carrying that responsibility. That's why wherever we can, we run away and blame our wives. This is a curse on humanity. And in Christ, we can reverse the curse. We can take our place as men and women, equally representing God in our respective ways as men and women. But the responsibility as head of humanity rested on Adam. And that is a picture of something that God was going to do to reverse it. Because, yes, there was a first Adam who was tested and tried under ideal circumstances and caved in, bringing sin and corruption into all of our lives. But there is a second Adam, and his name is Jesus Christ. Second Adam is the last Adam. Not looking for somebody else, because the second Adam succeeded. He conquered sin, death, and the grave. The first Adam failed, but our second Adam, Christ, succeeded. That's why we say we're no longer in Adam, we're in Christ. Christ is our identity. Christ is our life. And some people may say, well, it's not very fair. You see, it's Adam's fault. If only he'd had a, had just was a little bit more spiritual, we wouldn't have this trouble today. But you know, when we say that, we condemn ourselves. Because when we look at our lives, we see those five I wills working in us. Every single one of us demonstrate that we're part of the problem, not part of the solution when we turn our back against God. But Jesus has come to deal with it. Hallelujah. Gen- uh, when we look in, in the New Testament, we see 1 John 3 verse 8, an amazing passage. I do recommend that you read the whole passage. Let me just take this one verse today. He who sins is of the devil. You can see that. When you sin, you are identifying with the adversary, with Satan. When you say, I, I, I will run my own life, you are saying, I want to follow the essence of evil. The devil sinned from the beginning But thank God for the second Adam, praise God. There is Lucifer, there is Adam, and there is you and me. But in the middle of that, there is Jesus as well. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. What's the works of the devil in that context? Read it. It's destroying sin in our lives. Because sin was the root of it all, God deals with the root. First of all, he severs the root. He deals with sin. And then later on, when sin is dealt with, all the consequences of sin, all the fruits that flow from the roots will be dealt with. First of all, he deals with sin. And then he's coming back to not not just to bring healing, but to eradicate disease. Not just to feed the hungry, but eradicate hunger. To eradicate sickness. To eradicate disease. To eradicate 
all suffering. And in the meantime, when we are working to, to, to cooperate with God, to deal with suffering and relieve suffering, we are cooperating with the Lord of the universe and demonstrating that we believe that what we do in this world is not lost because we are building for the kingdom that is to come. No other religion or philosophy or ideology has the hope that we have. We have the hope, the real certain hope, and it's been proved that God raised Jesus from the dead, that it's not going to end the way it is now. Oh no, it's not. Every injustice is going to be rectified. Every disease is going to be eradicated from our very nature. And our bodies, which are dying every day from the day we are born, we're heading towards that certain inevitability, physical death. Even that is going to be reversed. For the last enemy to be destroyed is death itself. Praise God. We're living in a world, yes, that is broken and marred through sin. That apart from God is futile, pointless, painful and pitiless. Yes, it is. Living in a world that apart from God, if he had not subjected this in hope, we would rest forever in our bondage to corruption, perishing morally and physically, passing away and enduring into oblivion. But God says, I have set hope in motion. And now all eyes are fixed upon us, waiting for that manifestation of the children of God when we will be resurrected. And that will be the cue for the whole of the universe saying, now they're resurrected, the time has come. And our bondage to frustration and pain is going to be removed forever. In the meantime, what have have we got? Present suffering. Can you read Romans 8 in any other way other than the fact that we are still living in a broken hurting world which is going to break us and hurt us and cause us to suffer is that do you think we're ever going to be free from suffering before Jesus returns no yes God will break in with wonderful miracles and he will do more miracles if we understand what miracles are there for miracles are not there to give us a better life now miracles are to show that a better life is coming that's what miracles are for But in the meantime, we have this very present experience, suffering, groaning, waiting, and longing for what is to come. It's a present reality, the life of the Spirit. He's alive within us. We have new creation life in an old creation world, and it's not easy. But at this time, in this new creation life within us, we can learn to draw close to God and learn to love Him and understand our real purpose on this planet is to know Him, love Him, enjoy Him, become like Him and represent Him to the world. And we do that best, frankly, when things aren't going so well. Satan's word about Job was, of course, Job praises you. You've hedged him around. You give him an easy life. Anybody would praise you. If any God like that will get praise, just take away that stuff. He will curse you. And God, who is not the author of evil, said, okay, Satan, I allow you to do it. Job still praised God. He still praised God. He knew that God was good whatever happened to him. And in his circumstances, though it takes 40 chapters for him to really understand it, 
40 chapters of agonizing. You read the book of Job. Don't do it when you're depressed. But read the book of Job. And you will discover that the main message of the book of Job is that God is present when things are not going well. Because there's a higher purpose. And during this present life of suffering and pain, together with the blessings that God liberally showers upon us, it's all about causing us and calling us to draw closer to him. And we have this overriding assurance, which is there in verse 28, that in everything, everything, the good stuff, the bad stuff, the stuff we can explain, the stuff we can't, our successes, our weaknesses, even our failures, in the midst of all of that, God has not forgotten us and he is working something in us which is going to be for our eternal good and his eternal glory. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are the called according to his purpose. Let's give Jesus praise.